Well, welcome to the X's and Argos Scouting Report brought to you by Funny Bone Broth. My name is Ben Grant, and I am joined once again by the CFL on TSN's Marshall Ferguson, who probably didn't know I'd be calling on him four times when he agreed <laughs> to, to do this with me. Marshall, I know we set this before the schedule released. I hope you're not regretting it. No, not at all. It's uh, it's funny. I was actually, you go through Labor Day and the Labor Day rematch, and you think to yourself, like, okay, yeah, we had the usual back. And then you go a couple more weeks, and when I called the game this past Wednesday and I looked at the schedule and I go, okay, Toronto's next game is Hamilton in Hamilton. And I looked at Dwayne Ford. I'm like, didn't we just do that? (laughs) We're going back. We're doing the thing again. But again, it's, you got Winnipeg and Edmonton going at it a couple times over a couple weeks. You got Saskatchewan Calgary going at it three of four. I mean, it's, there's a lot of that this year. And, And for guys like you and I, I think that's actually really fun to analyze because we get to see these matchups crystallize game over game and you get to see some more of the specific matchups evolve because it's not just one game's worth of film, but if they stay healthy and they go against each other two, three times, you get to go, okay, so like, what is the offensive line doing against this Argos pressure or things like that? So uh, I, I've enjoyed it. I think it's going to be another fun one down at uh, Tim Hortons Field this Monday. Yeah, I'm pretty excited about it. For all those reasons you mentioned, I love analyzing the coaching decisions. Now, it, it is a little bit thrown off just because there have been coaching changes in Toronto. And yeah. there's, been so, there's been so much player movement, like not just that quarterback, but you know, all over, both teams have had their share of injuries. So it's not quite the same team that you're going against. But still, you've got two games, two full games that you can analyze now, not just you know, looking at last week's you know, Hamilton, Montreal, or this past week's Toronto, Ottawa, you've got all sorts of material to dig into, which is, is really exciting. Yeah, it, that's the thing that I really craved, I think, Ben, for the extent of the pandemic was we were talking so much football because we were keeping it alive. And I know you're in the same boat where you're you're interested and there's free agent signings and you're projecting rosters and training camp lineups and how the coaching staff is going to evolve. And uh, again, a lot of the things that have happened, you could never predict because who saw DJ Foster being the stud that he's been for the Argos? Who saw uh, your defensive coaching staff completely overhauling in a variety of different ways, especially at the top with Glenn Young? So the fun part of the CFL is the unpredictability, but no matter how unpredictable it is, it always gives you things that you can sink your teeth into. And that's what I really appreciate about this league. And I always will is that, uh, you know, you're talking about having two games worth of film to watch. I'm going through right now for the first time in two damn years. And I'm going, man, is Kalaros really that good at the short and intermediate game as I think he is? And I'm like, you know what? I have nine games that I can go back through and I can see, oh, and I can compare those nine games to, uh, you know, eight games that he had in the same stretch to begin the year in 2017. Or, and you can start to compare these things. So it is great to have more information because uh, info and knowledge is power. And we are powerful these days more than we have been over the last two years. Yeah, there's nothing better than current data. So yeah, cheers to yeah. that. So before we get into the Hamilton Toronto game, I just want a, a quick comment on this past week's game. Uh, I, don't, I don't even know what week I'm in right now, but the, <laughs> the Wednesday matchup, uh, Ottawa at Toronto. So you got to call that game. Awesome job. I finally got to hear you Thank on you. my on my rewatch. Really enjoyed it. But I got to say, from a play-by-play perspective, that's that's like a broadcaster's dream because it wasn't just like Antonio Pipkin QB sneaks for, for every Argos touchdown. <laughs> the teams found every possible way to score in that game. Yeah, it was fun. It was really fun. And uh, it's funny that you say, you know, broadcasters dream because there were moments where I kind of had to pinch myself because the first game that I called was Ottawa, BC in the rain. The only touchdown was Javon Katoy and I miscalled it like I, I messed it up. So I basically went from week four 
through week five, week six, week seven, week eight, week nine, into what I'm dubbing week 10A, because I view Thanksgiving Monday as being 10B. Um, I went essentially six weeks going, oh, yeah, I'm so, I messed up that call. I'm so angry at myself. And just like wallowing in this pity, self-despair. And, and I'm listening to all these games and Dustin Nielsen is getting all these touchdowns. And he's calling all these games. And then I'm hearing Rod Black come in and just crush a touchdown call. Rod Smith, crush it. And I honestly went into Wednesday. I'm like, I, I wasn't going to say it out loud, but in my mind, I'm like, can I get a touch? Can I get a couple touchdowns, please? Like just to, to see if we can make a highlight or two here and, you know, get my name out there and have some fun with it. And, uh, you know, my ego, thankfully, isn't big enough that I was going to walk away from that game if there were no touchdowns and go, this game was all about me. And I can't believe they didn't score touchdowns because I needed to. But it was it was great because there was variety. There was excitement, and I, I hope this comes through when I call games on TSN. I am genuinely calling the action as I see it. I think there's some people, and not just in the CFL, but there's some people in football play-by-play who like to you know, tee it up in the grandiose of the moment and lean into it, and that's a skill. I don't have that skill, so I just I say what the hell I'm seeing. And for me, my favorite part was when Richie Leone got that punt blocked. I didn't even realize in the moment, but listening back to it, I'm like, as Leone will send this one away. And then I just yell. I go, oh, no, it's blood. And, and that's just me like you would be sitting in the stands if you're at BMO going, oh, and pointing and yelling like your friends are there. So uh, I, I hope that that comes through on the broadcast. But it was a great game because there was a lot happening. Uh, the offense is back and forth. I love watching Caleb Evans live. I feel really fortunate to have him in Ottawa right now. I think that, uh, you know, his... His maturation process is not going to take as long as people think. I think the the issues that he dealt with in that game are easily correctable, quickly correctable. Uh, and Toronto is a fun team right now, and, and rightfully so at the top of the East. Although the point differential I was looking at last night after the uh, the game between Winnipeg and Edmonton, because Winnipeg, of course, leads the CFL in point differential. And I was looking at the Argos point differential. Not that that stat means that much of anything, but I'm like, it is wild to have a team that is in first place and is negative point differential in this spot. But I'm like, hey, welcome to the East Division in the CFL. Well, when the Argos lose, they lose. Yeah. And that's the thing. Like in, in all of their losses, they've been blown off the field. And in their wins, they've been, you know, usually comfortably up. And then they've kind of let the team crawl back in a little bit with the exception of the Ottawa game. But that explains the point differential. You look at the the road, the road games, they they can't seem to keep the other team off the off the scoreboard on the road and they have trouble getting it in themselves. So their their road play, their road differential is is massively negative and their home differential is 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 good. Uh, you know, they haven't lost a home game in, in a really long time, you know, extending back uh, several games into 2019. So it, it is really a night and day. And that kind of sets us up for, for this matchup and just kind of tying in just because I, I, I feel like I've got a moment here that I can actually make a, a, a really nice sounding segue. Uh, you were talking about those weeks in between your last call and this call and and, you know, pulling your hair out uh, at the at having missed that touchdown call. We could look at both of these teams in this matchup and you've got a similar thing going on the last time nick arbuckle played against hamilton and i i am starting to think arbuckle is going to be starting in this game we haven't heard anything yet but i think it is leaning that way but the last time he played in hamilton he threw that horrendous interception late in the game that really should have allowed hamilton to tie it if not for the, the missed extra point and then you look on the other side of the field the last time hamilton took the field that is a game that they have been thinking about every every day uh, over the past like 10 days since that occurred that that uh, really uh, not a horrendous loss but it was a, an emotionally upsetting loss to Montreal yeah. so both teams have been stewing over something so we'll see how that what that turns into on Monday 
Yeah, tough pill to swallow, I think, for the Ticats coming out of that one because they felt like they had it in the bag. They were in control most of the game. I, I believe in that game that uh, in terms of the uh, number of snaps that they were in the lead for Montreal, uh, it was only when Gino Lewis scored that touchdown in the fourth quarter. So there were 83 offensive snaps and 82 of them, Hamilton was in the lead in that game. And somehow you go to overtime, you're tied and they score. And then Sean Thomas Arlington obviously ends up the fumble costing him. But um, yeah, they, for me, the Arbuckle McLeod Bethel Thompson thing is really interesting right now because I've had the behind the scenes conversations with Macbeth in the lead up to this game on Wednesday. And he gave us the backstory on when he got pulled in week two. And he said, I felt like it was unfair. I felt like it wasn't right. And even Ryan Dinwiddie said, well, I, I didn't really think that I needed to do that. It's just, we needed to shake things up. So we did. And then, and he said, and then we won with Nick. So I stayed with Nick. He was like, that was probably unfair to, to McLeod as well, but, but that's what we decided to do. So there's a lot of that, I think, balancing act right now of feelings and emotions. And McLeod's really honest about it, like shockingly. So if he were an NFL quarterback who had been replaced and <laughs> was as honest as he was, it would be just the headline of sports center on a Monday morning. Like it, it, because that's how honest he's being where he's saying, I know that Nick is, is the franchise guy. That's why they brought him in. I understand my position in this franchise. However, when I go out to play, I feel like I should be the MOP every time I touch a football. And I, I don't really feel like giving the football up to anybody, but I'm also not going to slander Nick and I'm going to support him whenever he gets the start. So they've got this funky dynamic going. And McLeod also been in that interview, just coming to mind as I'm talking about it. He also mentioned that when he got benched, he kind of retracted himself from the team for a couple of days where he was emotionally withdrawn and he didn't really feel like a member of the team. And he wasn't really putting that much effort into film and into... And at some point, something clicked with him where he said, this is what I do. Like, I want to I want to be happy doing what I do. And I can't sit here in Toronto as a backup and just waste away the remainder of the year. And so he said, I'm going to rededicate myself. Well, unfortunately, Nick gets dinged. In comes McLeod and plays not that bad in the first, obviously, matchup against Montreal. And now you got the question as to where they're going to go moving forward again. But it, it's got a very, it's, it's of a higher level but it's got a very Ottawa Red Blacks 2019 feel where it's like this guy for two games, that guy for two games, flavor of the month. Oh, he's bad. Oh, he's good. And it's just back and forth and back and forth. And honestly, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. As long as you get more good than bad. The problem is when you get to a playoff matchup and it's the East semi or the East final, and all of a sudden you have to make a decision. There can sometimes be a tendency when that's the way your season has gone to flip-flop in-game because you're constantly second-guessing yourself. Well, maybe we'll get a hot streak here. Like Kevin Glenn and Brandon Bridge always jumps out to me in 2017, I think it was, in Toronto in the East Final, where Chris Jones was just two snaps of Brandon Bridge. Oh, I didn't like that throw. Kevin Glenn's in. Oh, Kevin's not that athletic. Brandon Bridge is in. It was just back and forth so much that you're like, is there a plan? Like, is there any coherence to what you're doing offensively? So it's going to create a tough challenge for them in decision-making and game management the later in the season we get. And I know just, you know, having having played and coached and watched football a long time, the quarterback position has to be handled very differently than yeah. than most other positions on the football field. However, I think what is a really interesting possibility, and I brought this up in the past, we talked about this a little bit on the podcast, and I've talked about this with a few guests as well. 
I'm really intrigued by the idea of not treating the quarterback role uh, the way that it's traditionally done. Now, I hate platooning quarterbacks. You know, I, years ago in Denver, uh, they had a very high profile situation of them trying it out. And, and it was like every drive, a new QB would come out. And it was, it was, it was planned, but it never really worked. I think what is interesting about these two quarterbacks is they've got very different strengths and skill sets. And you've seen that in the way that you've charted their, their passes and their completion percentages. I almost wonder, and, it, and it's so risky for a new head coach to do this, but I almost wonder if you should send in the guy that you think best matches up against that team. And so yeah. for Hamilton, I actually think McLeod Bethel Thompson matches up better against the Hamilton defense than, than Nick Arbuckle does just based on the things that Hamilton does well and the things they don't do as well. Now, I don't know if you can do that every week, but I'm really interested in outside the box thinking. And I, I think, you know, if this were, if, if coach Dinwiddie had been around for, for 20 years as a head coach, it's a gamble that he can maybe play around with a little bit, but it's, it's, it's also a quick way not to get your job back. If you try something outside the box, that's totally new and it fails, but yeah. it's, it's interesting. What do you think about that from a, a quarterback's perspective? I, I like it, honestly, because I do think that there is too much ego and there is too much importance on, well, this guy's going to get his feelings hurt. Like you're on a football team. You are one of the 24 starters that are on that football team. Yes, you are the most important. You're often the highest paid, all the rest, but you have to do your job. And And I don't love the idea. It's almost the same way that I feel about kind of, um, you know, the labor versus the ownership in professional sports. It's like, well, you know, if the ownership or management doesn't do their job, we say, well, let's give them the rest of the year and let them feel it out. If a player doesn't do his job, we go, ah, cut him. And it's like, there's a double standard there, which again, like, double standards, they're part of life. You can't avoid that in any fast of life. But I also look at the way quarterbacks are treated, the conversations we have around them, to your point, where we say, well, you know, we, we don't want to hurt this guy's feelings, so let's leave him in the game or let's not come out and, and publicly say that he didn't do his job. If a defensive back... Uh, you know, gets beat on a on a double move for a touchdown after the game. The coach is not going to come out and massage his ego. He's going to be like, "Yeah, he got beat. Well, that wasn't very good. He needs to be better." Um, so I like the idea of treating them as humans, like because we label it as quarterbacks, and there's this aura that comes with the sports psychology of, "Ooh, quarterbacks handle." If you label them as humans, if you label them as athletes, and then you treat them with the same status quo that you do with everybody else, then I actually think as a as a coach, that's what I would try to do. That's easier said than done with some people. But I do think that with Nick and with McLeod Bethel-Thompson, that is possible. And I think with Dinwiddie's straightforward approach, he's extremely honest with them. Ben, you know this from being at practice. The things he says to people on the practice field, he does not hold back and he likes to be fiery with it. it, it to me, he doesn't. He has this special ability as a young coach to be really honest and at times really harsh with you with that honesty and not offend anybody. Like, I don't think there's a single person in the Argos locker room that leaves a practice and they're like, F that guy. I don't like him. He, he attacked me personally. I think everybody understands what Dinwiddie's goal is. And I think the quarterbacks are part of that as well. So I don't think it's a bad idea for him to approach it that way. And if it gives you the strength and the multiplicity to be able to, to be ready, no matter who your opponent is, then you are a better football team. And at the end of the day, we're all just trying to be better football teams if you're in the CFL before you get to the colder weather. And I think that this is two 
pretty unique quarterbacks too. They they do have a good relationship now. I I don't know. I think it was always good, but I I don't know that for sure. I know it is right now. They're in a good place. Yeah. Certainly, they're both really bright guys. Um, I I love talking to both these guys. I think they they have such interesting perspectives. You know, McLeod McLeod Bethel Thompson especially. He's just so different from like you mentioned from every other every other athlete you talk to. I his finished interviews. my I finished my Zoom call with him, Ben, and I I didn't know where it was going to lead me, but I just felt like it was the right question to ask. I said, "What do you?" reading right now? That's a great question for him. And then we sat there for 10 minutes and he told me about all these audiobooks because he doesn't have a lot of time to read right now, but he's a history major. So he's been looking into this and that and, and like all of these things that you talk about. And to your point as well, like Max said at the start of training camp that when he, he got signed, one of the first days in training camp, he sat down with Nick and said to him straight up, Hey, I'm not going to do anything to hold you back, but you need to understand I want to play here as well. And there's no reason that we both can't support each other and both want to play and both cheer each other on. But that doesn't mean we can't be competitive. And that's the difference, man, like that you're talking about right there is they're smart enough to realize they're not the only person in the room. And and that's healthy to me. That's really healthy. And I think you look back through history, there's been a lot of quarterback rooms that have been real sour. And more and more, whether it be because of the effect that Bo Levi Mitchell has had where he's going to support everybody, that got shared down to Nick. Now Nick has shared that to McLeod or McLeod has shared that over to Nick because of all the journeys that McLeod has been on. Or it, I feel like overall quarterback rooms are becoming more, um, I guess, perceptible where they're able to get along a little bit better because everybody's got a common goal in place. There's not a whole lot of that snarky, I can't believe that guy's getting the start over me. I'm going to dive bomb him and I'm going to try to uh, to mess him up before he gets into the game in practice. I love what we're talking about here, Marshall, but we do have to get <laughs> back on track. We we always do this. I said to you again, I said, I promise we'll, we'll be short this time. And, it's my you know, fault. Uh, no, it's, 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 well, it's, you're, it's partly your fault. It's, it's both of us. <laughs> we both just want to talk football and we get yeah. way off on, on these tangents. So let's, let's get to the Hamilton sure. Toronto game here. So we'll keep on the topic of quarterbacks. I want to talk about uh, Jeremiah Masoli and what you've seen from him, because I know his, his numbers were okay. Last game against Montreal, uh, I think he threw for 233, uh, didn't have a pick, didn't have a touchdown either, uh, 70% or so completion uh, percentage, but he still doesn't look to me like the quarterback that everyone feared a couple of seasons ago. What do you see when you watch his play? Is it is are there still injuries that are maybe nagging him? Is it the team around him? What, how do you see it? It scares me, Ben. On, honestly, and I didn't expect to be saying that, but it's it doesn't feel like the same Jeremiah because Jeremiah has always been a little hit and miss. And when he hits, God, he's amazing. And when he misses, eh, it can be some bad days and some bad interceptions, but. I don't think it's knee related. I don't think that's playing on his mind at all. I just, I feel like he is, the good is not as explosive and good as it has been previously. And the bad feels really lackluster. And I think part of that is the amount of turnover in the offensive line and getting, uh, trying to regain continuity with Brandon Banks and Braylon Addison coming back in the lineup and all the rest. But when I was going through preparation for the Toronto Ottawa game this past Wednesday, I'm looking at every single statistical category across the board. And at one point I was sitting, sitting down next to one of my friends, his name's Scott. And I just, he's, he's a Ticat season ticket holder. And I just kept yelling, Scott. And he goes, what? I'm like, and I would read him a stat. And then I'd be like, Scott. And he'd go, why? I'd be like, I'd read him another stat. And the stats that I was reading to him was net offense, Ottawa Red Blacks, 270 yards. That's 60 yards shy of BC. Who's in seventh. 
Hamilton's in ninth at 258. Like net offense that you're getting per game. And I understand uh, Dominique Davis and the rainy game that you had in Ottawa and, and, and over time, a lot of those things equal out. Very rarely does one team play three quarters of their games in wind and rain and the other eight teams play their games in sun and warmth. So that was one that jumped out to me was net offense. They are not creating it. Anytime that Hamilton ends up behind Ottawa in offensive production, I just kept going. I can't, I can't believe what I'm looking at. Like first down gain average 4.6 for Hamilton is dead last 5.6 yards per first down for Ottawa is in eighth. That's a full yard difference between Hamilton and Ottawa between eighth and ninth. And it's Hamilton that's in ninth. Like I can keep going with all these two and outs. Hamilton's got 10 more than Ottawa. Hamilton's in dead last. Ottawa was in eighth. Uh, sacks allowed. Hamilton's given up 27 sacks on the year. Winnipeg's given up nine. That's the least in the CFL. I, I can keep going on these all day long, but the point being, Hamilton, whether it be because of the injuries, continuity, Masoli, Evans, Watford, rain, wind, sleet, snow, uh, uphill, downhill, I don't know what the reasoning is. It's scary. It, it really is. I can't. There's two things that have been supremely shocking to me in 2021. One of them is Hamilton's offense not being able to adapt and survive through the injuries. The other is, of course, Edmonton, who I thought would be a significantly better team going through what they're going through right now. But those two, for me, are the biggest just head slappers where you're like, I talk about this league and these teams all year long, and I didn't I didn't have either of that happening. And with Masoli specifically, I thought he would come back, he would get a chance to be the starting quarterback, and he would prove himself and keep Dan Evans on the sideline. That was given up, of course, because of the injury and the ribs and all the rest, but I don't think we were far away from that replacement happening even when healthy. And I think that they've they've been okay because the defense has been so strong that they've been able to, you know, stay in these these close games where the offense isn't producing but the defense is keeping them in it and they're able to pull out wins. Like they're obviously still playing well especially all the things that they've gone through not to mention strength of schedule which is is one of the elements that that you didn't mention in that long list of yeah. issues they've had. You know, they've got a pretty I don't want to say easy ride because there's no such thing really in the CFL, but the the remaining portion of Hamilton's schedule is same as Toronto is far, far more easy to look at than those those opening few games. So maybe those numbers will even out over the the rest of the season as they do get some more games that are, you know, maybe a little bit, uh, well, less less Winnipeg and Toronto, Saskatchewan heavy, uh, yes. I think uh, will probably help them statistically. But yeah, like you're saying, I, I, I do think there's there's something else going on there. Now, on the topic of the defense, though, Frankie Williams hasn't mm -hmm. practiced the last couple of days, and he's a guy that I know every offense coordinator is is scared to face. Uh, what does the potential of him not playing Monday do to that Hamilton defense? Underrated defensive back, I think, is where I've always been with Frankie because he, he plays the ball pretty well in the air, and he obviously has the athleticism to chase down some of the best receivers in the CFL. But it's obvious that the return game is going to be of concern if that's the case. For me, David Unger did a pretty good job as a return man, albeit a very different style of returner than Frankie. Frankie's a he's your typical get the ball, run 45 degrees towards the field, one cut, bang, make the long snapper miss, house call. Uh, we saw that in the Labor Day game, obviously, where he just perfectly to the field, split it, good blocking, nobody blocking the back, illegal contact, any of that, and he's clear. But for Unger, he's a jitterbug, and he likes to get it and juke and juke and juke and make one man miss and two man miss. 
And in the CFL, that typically doesn't work. It's not going to be an explosive return, but he'll get an average return of five, six, seven yards, something like that. And he'll hold his own, but it's the lack of explosive plays that really makes the difference when you're talking about not having Frankie Williams in there. I feel a little bit like uh, having having Deadman uh, this past week has, has prepped Toronto enough for defending any sort of return yeah. game because he is, I think he's the best in the league, but I, I like Williams as a field corner. I think there, there are not as many, obviously there's not as many field corners that, that scare uh, opposing offenses as there are boundary corners, but I do feel that Williams does a pretty good job of taking that side of the field away. And it's so much space to be able to take away because there is that threat that if you're off a little bit, if you try and throw, you know, one of those routes that you should really never throw in, in the Canadian game, unless you've got a, a, an absolute rocket of an arm, uh, he'll he'll make you pay for it. Not only pick it off, yeah. but take it to the house every time. And so that's where you know I feel like if he is out, that's a side of the field that opens up a little bit. So I, I wouldn't be surprised to see them target some of those those flood concepts that that Dinwiddie likes so much to the field. Despite well, if Macbeth plays, especially uh, maybe not yeah. as much if if Arbuckle plays. Yeah, those man, those floods. There's a lot of them on Wednesday. There's a lot of them in week eight against Montreal. Like you pointed that out, I think in, in the video you did breaking down Arbuckle and, and McLeod Bethel Thompson, their vertical throws, and that jumped out to me during the game that he really does lean on those a little bit more than some of these other coaches. But yeah, the, the thing I've always appreciated about Frankie when he's at that field corner is his ability to rob a seam route from the, the second receiver, right? In, in the slot position, running up the field and Frankie isn't a big guy, so he's not going to, you know, physically manhandle over the top, but he can double play where he can sit on a little sideline hang route. And then as soon as you throw the seam, flip the hips, five hard steps jump and he can cover a lot of ground with those steps because of his burst that he always shows in their special teams game. So yeah, he definitely does that. Well, I remember calling a game, I think in Winnipeg a couple of years ago where Frankie had like nine tackles in the first half as the field corner. And I'm looking at Mike Morielli in the booth going, I don't think that's great if your field corner has nine tackles, but at the same time, he's not really making the tackles where a field corner should. He's like actually in the pile he's strangely very close to the action for a field corner which i think is why they bumped him into half because they're like we got to get him closer to the ball he's making plays at corner so um yeah he's a dynamic player and if he does not play the argos will breathe a sigh of relief with that being said they did a hell of a job against Devonte deadman so apply that same rule book i guess if you do end up seeing him and if you don't then you get the kid you get the uh, the second round draft pick and unger likely and see what he can do against you so if Hamilton wins this game, uh, what will have happened in this game, Marshall? How do you see this game going if the final result is, you know, Hamilton wins by, you know, whatever the score may be? Jeremiah first downs, like Jeremiah first down production to me, because Tommy Condell's offense is pretty diverse. He has his staples that he likes, similar to what we're talking about with Dinwiddie, but he has to get a decent chunk of gain on first down in order to be able to consistently access what he wants to do. Because otherwise, he's just stuck throwing it 80-90% of the time, standing back in the pocket in the shotgun with Masoli, with people pinning their ears back, and Chris Jones sending exotic blitzes. And to me, that's not a formula for success. They have to be over five yards and average on first down to set up second and four consistently, second and three, at which point I think you'll see Condell start to mess around a little bit and have some fun, which is something that the Ticats offense has been dearly lacking the last little while. 
And if Toronto comes on top, is this sort of the reverse of everything that you just said, like not happening and you know things going wrong for the Ticats? I think if if Toronto ends up winning, then this is going to be quarterback driven to me. Like somebody has to try and step up and separate themselves. And if Nick comes back, I really do think he wants to avenge the Labor Day game because that Evans versus Arbuckle game was in the balance for a large chunk of time. And I think he'd like to go back in there and prove it. And the other thing about Nick is like, the, the dude works out harder than anybody else in the team. Like he's got a hamstring injury. He's posting videos on Instagram live of him squatting 500 pounds. You know what I mean? It's like, that doesn't really make sense to me in the way that I used to work out, but he, he loves to be in the gym and he loves to, he, he loves earning it. And for me, if I were Ryan Dinwiddie, pinball Clemens, whoever in the Argos organization, I would have a sit down, I think with Nick Arbuckle. And I would say, listen, you work your ass off year round. Why do you do that? And the answer is probably, well, I, you know, I want to be the best. I want to, okay, well, when you say you want to be the best, we're talking about games, right? Yeah, yeah, coach. Okay, well, it's games like this. It's games like this on the road in Hamilton, coming off of an injury, trying to prove you deserve to be the starting quarterback. This is why you put the effort in, like, because his motivation is unquestionable. But you really have to, I think, apply all of the work that you put in, because these guys can be robots where it's just, I do the work because I've been told to do the work because I've always done the work. No, you have to humanize that and say to him, listen, this is why you do all of that. And if you can do that, I think he'll connect. And, and if they get a great game out of him, they got a good chance to win. That's uh, that's well said. And a, a pretty good read of character, I think, on, on Nick Arbuckle too. I, I think he's one of those guys that they almost have to, when he anytime he gets injured, I think going forward for the rest of his career until he learns this, anytime he gets hurt, they have to like tie him to something uh, as well. Because watching him, like when he was recovering from that, that glute injury in training camp, I'd see him, you know, before practice, he's he's limited. He's not a participant, but he's down there in the end zone catching jump balls from from Bethel Thompson or Pipkin or, or Nick Tiano, who was out there. And even last game he wasn't dressed and you probably saw him out, out your window looking onto the field doing everyone's doing easy ups but he's like rolling out and juking imaginary defenders while doing his easy ups and you know he wasn't he wasn't even healthy he was just no. you know out there uh out there i guess testing his testing his mobility a little bit but he was working harder and in that pregame session than anybody. So I don't know. It's something that would make me nervous as a coach. They, they may have to have a conversation with him about that, I think, going forward too. Yeah, he gets after it pretty good. And I would think that that's something that they will, over time, he'll probably settle down a little bit on that stuff. And over time, they'll probably feel more comfortable talking to him about those things for now. It just I guess you, you let the wild horse run, I guess, at this point. Marshall, thanks so much for doing this uh, again with me. And again, we ran long. Uh, we've got one more to get this right. Maybe two. We'll see. Uh, so. It's two. It's, it's going to be two. Unless Montreal does something crazy like they did back here in week nine. I think we got two left. That sounds good. It's, uh, it seems like a good plan for both of us. Well, yes. thanks so much for joining me. I really appreciate it, Marshall. Yes, always, Ben. Thank you. That will just about do it for us on the X's and Argos scouting report. For Marshall Ferguson, this is Ben Grant saying so long and may all your pre-snap reads be good ones. I'll see ya.